0: Hi, this is filmmaker and author Michael Moran. Whenever I'm not riding my bike around the Davis campus, I'm listening to KDVS, College Radio, right here, FM. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're going to have a very, uh, very fascinating talk, I think, in segment two today with Bart Ehrman, the author of Peter Paul and Mary Magdalene, a very timely book, in that tomorrow, nationwide, The Da Vinci Code opens up, and people are expecting it to be a blockbuster. Dr. Bart Ehrman has written about uh, The Da Vinci Code in a previous volume, and uh, and has also written an excellent book called Misquoting Jesus. He is an authority on the Old Testament, uh, the New Testament, and things Christian. Uh, we're looking very forward to bringing you him in our second segment. But let us commence the program as we like to do with, uh, on this date in history, on this date in history, which would be May 18th, in 1898, the U.S. Supreme Court, in one of its most infamous decisions, Plessy versus Ferguson, ruled seven to one. That a Louisiana law providing for separate but equal accommodations for the white and colored races on railroad cars was constitutional. That decision stood until 1954 when a later Supreme Court struck it down in Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. The Brown ruling, of course, uh, corrected this uh, this fantasy that uh, that separate could be equal. Separate, they ruled, was inherently unequal. In the opinion of Radio Parallax, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson is probably one of the three worst Supreme Court decisions. And if you're keeping score, we would say that the Dred Scott decision of 1857, which ruled that a black person was not, in fact, a human being, had to be the top of the list. we think that uh, after Dred Scott and Plessy, you'd have to rank the recent year 2000 decision, Bush versus Gore, as pretty high on the list too, wherein it was decided that George Bush had to be appointed president because if he wasn't, well, then his presidency might go forward with a taint. You know, so we, we couldn't have all that vote recounting taking place down in Florida. If they did that, it might show that he actually hadn't carried the state. So that had to be avoided at all costs. And if you think I'm exaggerating, well, then please send a letter to info at radioparallax.com. And if you can explain it, we'll read it on the air, the Bush versus Gore decision of 2000. And, And by explain, I mean, explain why it was a logical decision. On this date in 1908, the U.S. Congress adopted a law making the phrase, In God We Trust, obligatory on certain American coins. The motto dated back to the Civil War in the early 1860s when religious feelings were stirred throughout the nation. On May 18, 1953, American Jacqueline Cochran became the first woman to break the sound barrier, flying a North American F-86 Canadair over California. Jackie Cochran was uh, was a longtime pal of uh, one of our more illustrious aviators, uh, local to the region, the legendary Chuck Yeager. General Yeager has been on our wish list of guests for this program for some time, and we have not yet given up, and we hope to, you know, at some point in the future, bring you Chuck Yeager. On this date in 1974, India joined the Nuclear Club, uh, becoming the sixth nation on Earth to blow off an atomic bomb. In doing so, India broke the nuclear monopoly, which had been held by the five members of the United Nations Security Council, the U.S., Soviet Union, Great Britain, China, and France. A couple months back, President George Bush announced that he was going to help India with its nuclear program, which does not sit well in nearby, or I should say, neighboring rival Pakistan, also the possessor of atomic weapons. We're going to try and talk about that in a future show. And on this date in 1980, a massive volcanic eruption of Mount St. Helens in southwestern Washington devastated 210 square miles of wilderness, leaving 57 dead. It's estimated that the volcano blew off with the equivalent of 24 megatons of blast. This is, uh, this is in the, um, the middle to upper ranges of uh, the, what we ever achieved using a hydrogen bomb. Mount St. Helens blew off with well over 1,000 times the force of the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Our statistic of the day, according to the Los Angeles Times, 52% of teenagers who signed an abstinence program's promise to remain virgins until marriage had sex within one year. That was according to a study of 14,000 teens, And uh, yes, ladies and gentlemen, the abstinence program pushed by the Bush administration is not panning out so well. Our quote of the day comes from Mary Cheney, the avowedly lesbian daughter of the vice president. She said she nearly quit the Bush-Cheney campaign in 2004 after George Bush called for a constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriage. Quote, I had to decide if I could work for the election of a man who wanted to write discrimination into the Constitution. Cheney, whose memoir is out this week, said she stuck it out because she said her father did not back the measure and because after 9-11, quote, I don't have the luxury of being a single-issue voter, unquote. And yes, dear listener, if you can explain what you think Mary Cheney meant by that, not having the luxury of being a single-issue voter, again, drop us a line over at info at radioparallax.com. The most logical selection among the uh, entries will be read on the air. Our quip of the day comes from the immortal Mae West, who once said, When women go wrong, men go right after them. And I want to thank one of our listeners for sending us a tip which directed us to a website which uh, referred to a bar and grill conveniently located on the Sacramento River just one mile from the Sacramento International Airport. I won't mention the name of this place, But I was highly amused to note that uh, it apparently offered a full-service marina, a bar and grill, and good, clean family fun. Accompanying the website is a beautiful, pristine photograph of a river with large conifer trees lining the banks, which (laughs) appears to have no relevance whatsoever to its location one mile from the Sacramento International Airport. Now, in the defense of this establishment, nowhere is there a caption claiming that this is a photograph of where the marina is located. But this correspondent is highly familiar with that stretch of the Sacramento River, and I can tell you that uh, there is no location within 50 miles of that spot that could fit what you see in that photograph. Alright, let's do the good, the bad and the Ugly. According to the Week magazine, last week was a good week for Boy Kings. After the 3,000-year-old mummified penis of King Tutankhamen which had been reported missing in 1968, was discovered lying under his mummified body. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for keeping secrets after a sanitation worker in D.C. apparently found the discarded itinerary of an upcoming presidential visit to Florida The pile of White House documents listed arrival and departure times for Air Force One, every passenger's name, and the order of vehicles in the presidential motorcade. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the administration whose aides get picked up for shoplifting, who wants to record your telephone conversations, or at least keep track of who you're calling, who busts people for leaking, quote, secrets, unquote, unless, of course, the president himself and vice president decide they wish to leak them. Oh yeah, I won't go on. But really, are any of you surprised that the itinerary of a presidential visit would turn up in a trash can? And it was apparently an ugly week last week for the family of an Oregon teenager who's trying to have him released from the army, which recruited him despite the fact that he's autistic. Jared Gwinther, 18, who rarely speaks, wasn't even aware of the war in Iraq until a recruiter enlisted him last fall to become a cavalry scout, the Army's most dangerous job. When Gwynethur's mother complained to the recruiter, he replied that he himself was dyslexic and that Jared, quote, doesn't need his mommy to make his decisions for him, unquote. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't make these things up. All right, and some follow-up on last week's program where we talked about the uh, utter gutlessness of the Democratic Party, which does not seem to be seizing uh, the reins to to <laughs> reverse some trends in the country that perhaps need reversing. Apparently, when Russ Feingold attempted to, uh, to censure President Bush not so long ago, reporters were trying to get to Hillary Clinton to ask her a question about what she thought about the censure. Senator Clinton apparently did a great impression of uh, Walter Payton uh, in the backfield, dodging people to get away from the reporters. I do want to thank Nancy Pelosi, potentially the Speaker of the House, for so the Democrats retake the, uh, uh, the lower House of Congress in November. Um, on assignment for this program, I had a chance to go to the Democratic Convention uh, two years ago. was about uh, six feet away from Nancy Pelosi, and I, I got to tell you, I was extremely unimpressed. But when it comes to being unimpressed by Democrats, the person who is leading the pack for Radio Parallax has to be Phil Angelides, who received the nomination of uh, California Democrats, uh, their endorsement for the upcoming primary in June. Uh, we were sad to note the Sacramento Bee lined up uh, in the Angelides camp as well. Last Sunday, they said, quote, the Democratic Party's fortunate this year in that its primary features a pair of energetic candidates with some notable differences, who hoped to unseat Arnold Schwarzenegger as California's governor. Angelides was described as a former developer of mostly suburban subdivisions who has morphed into an advocate of smart growth planning and corporate responsibility. (laughs) He has morphed? He has morphed from a former developer of mostly suburban subdivisions into an advocate of smart growth? Hmm... We presume by smart growth they mean whatever his benefactor Angelo Tsakopoulos would like to see. And by the way, if you've ever driven over to the causeway, and I'm sure all of you listeners uh, have at some point, and many of you perhaps are, you know, right on the causeway and right now as we speak, um, notice that the open land just. West of that bypass, uh, which stretches out for miles, has all been bought up by a developer who has plans for them. Big development plans for that region. His name, well, we'll give you a hint. His first name is Angelo. This would be an excellent time to point out that the opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But (laughs) I do want to point out they later quote from this B, opinion piece, which is, quote, If elected, Angelese could have a historic impact on directing California's growth, ensuring that state money is directed toward compact, desirable communities instead of the usual sprawl. To do this, he will need to occasionally stand up to developers, particularly his longtime mentor and benefactor, Angelos Sacopolos. Now, if you're in a traffic jam out there, I don't care where you are in the sa- greater Sacramento metropolitan area in Davis or whatever. Uh, if you're in a traffic jam, the odds are excellent that Angelo Sacopoulos has had a hand in gumming up the works on the flow of traffic on the highway thanks to development. The idea that the bee has that Angelides could have a historic impact on directing California's growth provided all he has to do is stand up on occasion to his primary benefactor, financial supporter, and former mentor, Angelo Sakopoulos, is a curious bit of logic, in our opinion. You know, we're of the opinion on this program that California needs a former developer as governor, uh, about like a daycare center can benefit from a child molester. Let's just do a little substitution for that paragraph. If elected, George Bush could have a historic impact on directing the nation's energy program, ensuring that federal money is directed toward alternate energy sources instead of the usual oil gluttony. To do this, he will need to occasionally stand up to the oil industry, his main benefactor, particularly his longtime mentor, Ken Lay. Can anyone out there think of an example where a politician, once elected, then stood up to his primary benefactor? Anyway, we make no bones about it. If, if Phil Angelides is the Democratic nominee for the November election, we are going to do what we can to support Arnold Schwarzenegger, pending a third-party candidate uh, who is worthy. And speaking of Kenny Boyle and Enron, Ken Lay, of course, was George Bush's number one financial supporter in the run-up to, uh, to the Bush presidency. Uh, down in Houston, uh, the case has been sent to a jury we have to admire the argument that was offered in the trial by Dan uh pleading for his client, uh, former Enron CEO Jeff Skilling, that uh, the whole approach is that Enron was a mob organization. Apparently, Mr. Petricelli thought that was really unfair, unfair characterization by the prosecution. He argued that the only reason that eight cooperating witnesses had testified against Skilling was that they had been, quote, robbed of their free will, unquote and forced to plead guilty to fictitious crimes at Enron. Mr. Petrocelli did not explain how it was that, uh, that these witnesses had been robbed of their free will. But we presume on this program that the usual methods were employed uh, for zombification, which involved trances and drugging by voodoo high priests. Now we mentioned a moment ago the issue of secrecy, you know, and presidential itineraries turning up in the ash can. This is a big issue in Washington. You know, what's going to be classified? What's going to be, um, you know, secrets? Secrets and who has them and who should be, you know, looked into. It's been swirling around Washington for quite some time. We're enormously pleased here, here at KDVS that we've been able to bring you Ambassador Joseph Wilson, not once but twice. We hope that perhaps we'll get him, we hope that perhaps we can even bring him on a third time in the future. His wife, Valerie Plame, It was announced in the news a couple days ago. Uh, The former CIA agent, whose identity was leaked after her husband challenged the Iraqi war, sold her memoirs in a deal that is in the low seven figures, according to the AP. Crown Publishing's Vice President Steve Ross said she will tell her whole story, absolutely. The CIA will have rights uh, to review the book in advance, but uh, the heavy-handed censorship, quote, would be a potential public relations landmine, said Steve Ross. We, uh, we would like to remind you that, uh, that last month, uh, Malia Rulon and Maureen Grope of the Gannett News Service uh, noted that new documents in the federal case surrounding the leak of classified pre-war intelligence about Iraq contained the allegation that President Bush was the one who authorized the leak. That's what the uh, indicted former aid to Vice President Dick Cheney, Scooter Libby, told a grand jury in March 2004. Information from a classified CIA document called the National Intelligence Estimate that analyzed whether Iraq had weapons of mass destruction was leaked to Judith Miller, then a New York Times reporter, on July 8, 2003. The estimate said, We judge that Iraq has continued its weapons of mass destruction programs in defiance of UN resolutions and restrictions. It also mentioned that a foreign government service had reported on alleged Iraqi attempts to acquire uranium ore from Niger. Of course, Ambassador Wilson had reported to Vice President Cheney by that point in time that there was nothing to the Niger uranium story. Apparently, according to Scooter Libby, President Bush authorized the leaking of that bogus data to Judy Miller at the New York Times just the same. This prompted... Ambassador Wilson's op-ed piece and has eventually led to, to, as of last week, a apparently million-dollar book contract for his outed wife, Valerie Plame. Meanwhile, according to the Washington Post last month, the CIA fired a long-serving intelligence officer for sharing classified information with the Washington Post and other news organizations, said officials. The agency is continuing an aggressive internal search for anyone who may have discussed intelligence with the news media. Maybe they could start with the Oval Office. Before we take a break, I do have to note uh, probably the most bizarre twist in all this arguing over secrets uh, is perhaps the fact that the deceased, Jack Anderson, uh, apparently is still being gone after by the powers that be. Jack Anderson made a 50-year career of annoying officialdom. President Nixon put him near the top of his enemies list, which, it was noted in Newsweek, prompted a wry and very Andersonian response, which was, maybe the list was alphabetical. Brian Bennett and Mark Thompson over at Newsweek noted that Anderson has now performed a feat of mau mowing perhaps unique among all muckrakers. He's irritating the government from the grave. Jack Anderson died five months ago at age 83, but this February, the FBI contacted his family to request that they be allowed to search his files for any classified documents. The clash between Anderson's family and the FBI is the latest example of the Bush administration's post-9-11 push to crack down on leaks of sensitive information. Again, unless they're being the leaker. Anderson's son, Kevin, one of the reporter's nine children, said the family was willing to cooperate with the FBI until agents made it clear they wanted to review every document and pull any they believed were classified. We will return to the subject of Jack Anderson and the FBI in the future, I promise you, and we may try to actually get Kevin Anderson to to speak with us. That would be, um, that'd be wonderful. It's, um, It's hard for anyone to imagine the power that Jack Anderson once held in this country. He was huge. But Jack Anderson had not been active for many, many years. Most of the issues he uncovered were, uh, you know, a, a couple of decades back. What the government wants to do is find out who was leaking to Jack Anderson, which they'll be able to do once they have the documents. The secrets are no longer important, but who leaked them to Jack may be. That's what I think is really going on, and as I I say, we will return to that topic. You're listening to Radio Parallax. This is KDVS, 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. I'm Douglas Everett, and when we return in segment two, we're going to talk about the real Mary Magdalene, not, not the person as portrayed in The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. This should be quite compelling. Stay tuned.